I'm Daniel Bisbicki. I'm Dave Zuliger. And this is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus. Are you listening and interested in hearing more? Go to Bethlehem.church forward slash locations forward slash south dash campus. Dave, today we have Jonathan Lehman with us. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, brother. Good to be with you. And and the South Campus. The South Campus Church. South Campus Church, yes. We (laughs) an assembly of the saints. Um, So Jonathan, you're a baseball fan, right? You are a fan of the reigning world champions. That's Um, right. As part of the podcast, we ask our uh, interview interviewees uh, just random questions about life. And so my question to you, Jonathan, is what is your favorite memory as a Nationals fan? Probably favorite. Well, I mean, okay, so it's, it's I have to say it's game seven of the World Series last year, last fall, when it's like midnight and my whole family has gone to bed and I'm sitting alone in the dark watching this, right? This is horrible. Here I am in the dark by myself at midnight watching this. Who, who wants to watch the Nationals win the World Series that way? So I go to my 13-year-old daughter, who is the most invested in the series and most interested, and I wake her up at midnight. I'm like, Anna, you got to come watch. She's like, Dad, I'm asleep. I'm like, no, you're getting up. You'll thank me. That's great. That's great. So I, I made my poor daughter join me. She was grateful. Now, you guys won. That's probably part of the reason that she was grateful. can imagine That's it being right. a bit different if uh, the Nationals had lost. Um, so, Jonathan is uh, the, are you the executive director for Nine Marks still? Is that still your uh, title? I'm the, I'm the editorial director. Editorial so I, director for I'm, Nine I'm, Marks. I'm in charge of content. Okay. Kind okay. of the administration of the whole machine. Right? Gotcha. The content of it. Gotcha. You've written a number of books about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. What's uh, what's the most recent book that you've written? Oh, the most recent one that came out is actually more of a booklet that I wrote with uh, your very own Andy Nacelli. How do we love Christians with whom we disagree politically or something? Yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah, Jonathan has written a lot on the subject of uh, the doctrine of the church. And so we thought we'd have him uh, on the podcast, only for the sake of talking about congregationalism. So uh, this week, the week that this uh, podcast is going to be published, we're having a vote uh, where we're asking the congregations at Bethlehem to come together at their respective locations and to vote on some pretty big job descriptions changes for some of our pastors. So we thought it would be fitting for Jonathan to join us and talk about why congregationalism, why do this thing where we come together and we vote on things. So, So Jonathan, probably my main two questions, and we can really just take this any direction you think might be helpful. Maybe we'll steer the ship a little bit as we go, but talk to us a little bit about the history of congregationalism. Like, like congregationalism, is this just an American thing? Is this just a, a democracy? You know, we are living in a democracy. Therefore, it makes sense that we ought give people votes for things. What, what's a history of congregationalism as, as, you know, as kind of briefly as you could summarize it? Yeah, sure. Well, number one, it begins with Jesus. Amen. Number two, it goes on to Paul. (laughs) Uh, So we we could talk about the biblical case for it if you want. But but then you you see inflections of it throughout church history. 
I mean, it's, it's there in some of the some of the oldest documents, the congregation's involvement. Uh, uh, and, and then you, you even see it in early church history, you know, as mm -hmm. much emphasis was that was given to the bishop's role and the uh, visible universal meaning connectional church that you get beginning especially with with Cyprian and Augustine and so forth you also see them talking about the congregation's responsibility to choose its elders and remove elders in certain cases you know this comes through really clearly in Cyprian for instance the kind of the bishop's guy that we all point to is really elevating the bishop he also uh, had a very strong sense of, of the congregation's responsibility to bring in and see out if necessary it's it's pastors and bishops um you have a number of things you you, you see early treatises on different kinds of voting whether you're voting with, with these wooden things or you're voting by hand and and not only this it's 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 pretty common in the ancient near east ancient greek greco-roman world to involve uh, whether it's the Senate voting or the Ecclesia voting or the, the people in the Republic, Roman Republic, uh, voting in one way or another. This was fairly common in the ancient world. It no, it wasn't a straight democracy, but neither was it straight Caesar's rule. You know, you, you had kind of a blend of, of different forms of government. Now, obviously, that changes in the Roman Empire, the more the Roman Republic turns into the Roman Empire. Um, you know, even even during the time of Christ, but but this idea of voting and the people voting was very common in that world. It was it was also common uh, uh, among among Jewish synagogues and so forth. So this is not a Western idea per se. That's just that's just wrong. Plus, the earliest writings on congregationalism, more what we think of congregationalism. So so I'm sorry. So it's there, kind of in the early early church. It, it shows up in some of these figures that we all like to quote, like Cyprian and Augustine. It shows up in the early Reformation. I mean, Calvin has congregational infections where the, the congregation is involved in some form or fashion in discipline, though you see inconsistencies in Calvin. It's clearly there with Luther, especially in his earlier documents as he's, as he's talking about priest of all believers. Again, and it's, it's most clear, hey, we call this congregationalism, that really starts to show up in the 1550s, 60s with a French writer named Jean Morellet. Jean Morellet is corresponding with, with Beza and even Calvin. So, hey, this is new, say the Presbyterians and Anglicans. Well, look, it's, it's, it's no, in its presence form, it's no newer or less new than your Presbyterianism in English. So we have it there in the 1550s and 60s. You know, in its British American form, yeah, that doesn't start showing up until a, little, a few decades later, late 1500s, early 1600s. Um, but what, what keeps driving this thing is, is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. So once, once Luther begins to recover that, you, you just can't escape it, right? That, that, that for all, all shall the know, know the Lord from the least, you know, no man shall teach his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, says Jeremiah. So what, once you recover that with Luther, it's pretty hard to escape the demands of, of congregationalism. And that's why, hey, Baptists like me, congregation, small c congregationalists like me can say to our, you know, our, our Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian friends, hey, you helped recover the gospel, justification by faith alone. Thank you so much. That's the most important thing. We're with you. But we have our little bit here to add, which is the completion of that project, that Reformation project in the church. 
we think the church is for baptized believers, number one, and the church means all of us have kind of a final say in declaring the what and the who of the gospel. Um, I can keep rambling, guys. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the what and the church declares the what and the who of the gospel. What, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say, or when you say, um, the church has a declarative function over the what and the who of the gospel? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Of course. Matthew 16, who do you guys say that I am, says Jesus to his disciples. And finally, Peter steps forward. And Peter's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, notice that, that Jesus asked the question twice, who people say that I am. That is to say, what's a right confession of who I am? Some say Moses, some say John the Baptist, some say others say Elijah. What's a right confession of who I am? But then he asks it a second time. Okay, who do you guys say that I am? Which of you know it? And, and then that's, as I said, when Peter stepped forward. So there's a sense in which Jesus right there in Matthew 16 is concerned with a what and a who. What's a right confession? And who of you is a true confessor? Peter answers. He says, that's right. The father in heaven told you that. And I tell you, you're Peter. So far, then you give Peter the keys. Whatever you bind on earth, bring in heaven. Loose from earth, loose from heaven. Um, th that's how Jesus is going to build his church. Confessors confessing the right confession, right? What's the rock? I would say the rock, along with, I think, most evangelical commentators, is a confessors confessing the right confession, right? It's Peter saying, this is the gospel. And then Matthew 18, you pick up that same dichotomy. You see the same, same interest in the what and the who of the gospel. You, in, in that case, it's actually more on the who than, than on the what. Uh, you, you have somebody confessing the right confession. He's a member of the church, but he's living in a way that seems to contradict that. He's not being reconciled to his brother. And so finally, the church now is given the keys. Whatever you, plural, bind on earth to be bound in heaven, whatever you, loose in heaven, be loosed in heaven. Okay, now the church is making that, that declarative role. So the declaration is, to answer your question, Daniel, the declaration is that you might say a judge-like declaration. Does the judge make the law? No, he interprets the law. Does the judge make a person innocent or guilty? No, a person before God is innocent or guilty. But what a judge has, according to a legal system, a judge has an authority to, to render judgment according to the law of this person. You know, guilty, not guilty. Then the whole legal system jumps into play uh, on behalf of the judge's declaration. And whoever's holding the keys, whether that's the apostle, whether that's the bishop, whether it's the presbytery, whoever you think holds the keys, that's the second, who, who, who holds the keys, that's the second conversation. But first the conversation, what are the keys doing? They're making that judge-like declaration over the what of the gospel, what's our statement of faith, and the who of the gospel, who of these are actually church members. Now, I think Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the whole church, right? Others say that's the presbytery, others say it's the bishop, fine. I think he gives it to the whole church there in Matthew 18. I think that's very, in 19 and 20, whoever, whoever two or three gather in my name, there I am. They speak for me, right? Not the bishop, not the elders room, the congregation. Um, so yeah, you have the congregation making judge-like declarations over what the gospel is, not making the gospel the gospel, but what it is, what we interpret it to be, and who belongs to it, which people are we going to baptize in the name of Christ and bring in the membership in the church? Yeah. So there's some, just the biblical warrants and the Genesis of responsibilities granted to the entire church for the sake of what you said, the what and the who of the gospel, a declarative yes. uh, function. So we gather together, not just as a matter of good course, because we're Americans and we think, uh, you know, a democratic system, just makes sense because we think our governmental system makes sense. 
here in America. Well, and hold on, hold on. Let me let, 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 let me believe, bring these together. I mean, lot Thomas Hobbes, uh, you know, is writing in the in, in the sixteen well, fifties. He's writing Levine, and John Locke is writing in the sixteen seventies, eighties, and nineties, right? So they're kind of these originators of democracy. They're writing in the late sixteen hundreds. When when did I say Jean Moray's writing? He's writing in the 1550s and 60s, and early Baptist and Congregationalists, Robert Brown, early Big C Congregation is writing the 1580s, and early Baptists are writing this early 60s. All of this precedes democracy in its modern form. So th- this came yeah. first. This is not just a Western democratic. It's like, yep. you know, do, do your history a little bit better. Yep, yep, good. So that's part of the reason we're gathering together, Dave. So Dave, uh, are there any other big texts that kind of, so Matthew 16, Jonathan just mentioned, Matthew 18, any other big texts that kind of inform um, how we think about the congregation having uh, a, a responsibility in this, either te- you know, teasing out a bit more what's in Matthew 18 or anything else that you see in, in the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, it seems like the other corollary is going to be 1 Corinthians 5, where you see uh, church discipline handled the same way that, that Paul is asking the congregation to carry out this discipline. Uh, together to put this person out of the church and so uh, another question I was going to have him elaborate on that's kind of in line with Matthew 18 1 Corinthians 5 is maybe for the people listening help them understand the connection between those declarations and priesthood of all believers so how, how do those how do those things fit together if we're going to put together here here you are priesthood of all believers God knows all of you um, no longer are we looking to some special office for this and then carrying out these responsibilities. Yeah, under the old covenant, I needed a certain mediator, a priest, right, in order to have access to the means of grace, in order to have access to the sacrifice, in order to have access to ceremonial cleanliness and so forth. I couldn't, as a good Jew, do that on my own, right? I had to go through a mediator. He gave me access to the institutional manifestations of God's blessing and provision, right? Mm-hmm. When Jeremiah and other new covenant or, or, or prophets come along, uh, those talking about the new covenant, Ezekiel 36 and so forth. But when Jeremiah specifically says, you know, um, uh, uh, no one shall teach his brother, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. What he's doing, to, to borrow from a Presbyterian author, Greg Beale, he is, he is democratizing the priesthood mm-hmm. there right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, I don't need to go through a special class of mediators to know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So he is, he is taking down the old structures there, or rather Jeremiah's pointing toward the taking down of the old structures, these mediating priestly roles, and all of us now have access. So what, is, what does that mean when somebody shows up professing the gospel with evidence of the Holy Spirit. Well, as Peter says in Acts chapter 10, who, who are we to keep these people from baptism? They surely have the Holy Spirit of God in them, mm-hmm. right? So even Peter, an apostle, does not see himself as able to prohibit uh, truly Holy Spirit-indwelt believers from the means of grace through baptism and access to the people of God and membership of the people of God, right? Nonetheless, Peter and then the church have a role to play in um, uh, affirming that, which they do then through baptism. Right? Baptism is how we affirm somebody's profession of faith. Uh, nonetheless, if you establish a class of individuals, call them priests, call them 
presbyters, call them anything you want. You establish a class of individuals through whom I have to go in order to gain access to the means of grace and the membership in the people of God. Well, suddenly you have given them a priest-like mediating role again. That's more in line with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. However, if you merely ask the entire congregation, hey, you guys have to agree this person's a believer. Do you agree he's a believer? And the whole congregation says, yeah. Well, what that does is that preserves the priesthood of all believers. So, yeah, there's a big dif difference between establishing a certain class of individuals as, as providing access and um, just asking the whole congregation to do it. Jonathan, what would you say then? So we've now moved, we talked a little bit about the history of congregationalism, talked about some of the biblical warrant for it, kind of grounded in a priesthood of believers in the new covenant, different from the old covenant. What would you say are the biblical responsibilities that the whole church has? So speaking Bible here, you know, there might be other things about that are just wise calls like, uh, hey, vote on a budget, hey, vote on other things like that. But sure. biblically speaking, what do you think are the responsibilities? What texts might you go to to show those responsibilities for the congregation? So now, yeah, great question. So now you're sitting in a church membership class in my congregation, and I'm, I'm addressing you as a would-be candidate, right, for, for membership in my church. And what I'm going to say to you is, hey, listen, if you join this church, we understand that you are becoming collectively responsible, jointly responsible with the rest of us for affirming the who and the what of the gospel. We're actually asking you to help us, to lock arms with us and help us protect the gospel and the declaration of the gospel and the people of the gospel in this particular location here in Chevrolet, Maryland, right? Uh, where do I get that? Well, I get that in Matthew 16, I get that in Matthew 18, I get that in 1 Corinthians 5, I get that in Galatians. So let's just pick, let's just do Pauline text. 1 Corinthians 5. Don't you know, don't you guys know that you're to judge those inside the church, he says in uh, verse 12. So the, they're there to watch over the who of the gospel. Or let's go to Galatians 1. Uh, I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you guys, you Galatians, not the elders, not the bishops, I'm astonished that you Galatians, are so quickly turning to a different gospel. Don't, don't you know that even if I or an angel from heaven came to you with, di diff with a different gospel, uh, let him be eternally condemned? Uh, I, I don't care if somebody flaps down with wings from heaven. I don't care if somebody shows up in your midst holding the apostles card. You, congregations in Galatia, have authority over that if he's bringing a false gospel. Okay, back to my membership class. Friends, we need you to help us guard the gospel here, which means guarding one another. So your primary responsibility is to make sure the teachers are not forsaking scripture uh, and that this statement of faith that you're affirming is a correct one and making sure that we as a congregation are living together. And so, you know, number one, show up, be here, get to know people, you know, so that you can speak with integrity about what's being taught and what's going on in one another's lives. Yeah, and, and come to our members meetings. So, so that's an all-week thing. But then every other month, we have a, a, a special members meeting where we take votes and we, we make decisions around things pertaining to the who and the what of the gospel. And along with that, I would say any, any decision that uh, significantly impacts the nature, integrity, and mission of us as a church, any decision that significantly impacts the nature, integrity, 
or mission of us as a church is is something that we think is part and parcel of protecting the who and the what of the gospel. So we're going we're going to involve the congregation in that. Like you, you you just mentioned a church budget. What is a church budget doing? Well, it's it's very much determining how we're going to do the mission of the church in this place. So no, I don't have a biblical text to say the church votes on a budget, but none insofar as it significantly impacts the mission of this church. Yeah, we're going to we think it's a wise matter to mm-hmm. have you vote on that. Yeah, good. Any other at, at uh, there in Chevrolet, uh, what do you vote on? What do you ask the congregation to vote on uh, in, a, in addition to those things? Or is that essentially it? They vote on these things, bringing people into membership, disciplining them out of membership or removing them from membership. They're moving on. Uh, the, the leaders, you know, that, uh, that are going to be responsible for their souls and yeah. the budget. What what else would you guys vote on there? Would there be anything else? The color of the uh, the carpet in the pew. You guys don't have pews, so uh, we have folding chairs. We set up every week. Okay. Uh, yeah, and let me just say the most important thing I think we do is we receive and remove members. That is the most important thing we do because that is determining who the church is. And so for that reason, we put that right up at the beginning of members meetings. People didn't downplay that as kind of an administrative thing, and I, I just want I want we need to understand that is the most important thing you're doing. And then number two, yeah, nominating and affirming who your leaders are, your elders and deacons, because those are the ones who are going to be teaching and then modeling the gospel, right? So I think that's a crucial thing. And incidentally, something Presbyterians and Anglicans and others all do. Uh, that's not just us. Um, so that's the second thing I vote on. There, we, we, I think a church needs to figure out in its context what an appropriate, as it were, dollar amount is. Okay, so a $5,000 purchase of a photocopier, uh, you know, that's not the sort of thing you need to bring to a whole church. But let's suppose you have a church with, you know, a $100,000 budget and there's a $50,000 decision that needs to be made. Well, that, yeah, that's a, you know, hiring, hiring a pastoral assistant for $40,000. Look, we only have a $150,000 budget. Well, that, that's going to significantly impact mm-hmm. your church's ability to, to fulfill its mission. Uh, so, yeah, I can understand why in, say, the church with a $150,000 budget, they're going to bring up a, a $40,000 pastoral assistant p- decision to the whole congregation. That makes sense to me. Well, now you stick that $40,000 decision in a church with a $3 million budget. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's not as crucial to the nature, integrity, or mission of the church. Mm-hmm. So that might be as a situation where the, the elders or, or staff, this is certain executive staff, just make the decision. So some of these things are going to be flexible from context to context, right? Nonetheless, uh, yeah, you're looking to bring anything that is, it rises to that more church defining element. And is there anything else I would add? There might be a few other things that for some reason we should think would be useful for, for the sake of financial or, or church unity. I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, Daniel. Okay. Uh, well, I have one more question, just a, a question about church discipline, and then I'll you know, kick it over to Dave for any further questions here as we're finishing yeah. up. But um, so to enact church discipline, to remove someone who bears the name, continues to bear the name of brother or sister, um, yet they are walking out of step with the gospel, either because of doctrine or moral failing. Um, so what does a congregationalist believe, or perhaps that's a bit too broad a question to ask, but what do you think is the best way of thinking about the actual action of discipline. So, uh, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic, and for someone to be excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church was a, a, uh, a statement uh, very much in line with, uh, you are cut off from the means of grace and therefore cut off from heaven 
we are certain of this. Because the, yeah, right. the priest, the diocese speaks on behalf of heaven in total. Um, so when we're doing church discipline uh, in congregational churches or evangelical churches, um, again, this is probably a practice that's fallen out of, uh, out of practice overall in most Western churches, unfortunately. But when we're doing that, what are we, what are we saying uh, about the faith of the person who is uh, under discipline then? Great question. We are not saying we're consigning you to hell. We, we don't have the authority to do that. Yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a older Roman Catholic view. We're not even saying that we know with certainty that this person is a non-Christian. We, we're not the Holy Spirit. We're not rendering an end-time judgment here. Uh, uh, we don't have x-ray vision into the person's heart. What we're doing instead is saying we can no longer affirm this person as a believer. When they join the church and we put the name of Christ on them through baptism, we are, we are publicly affirming them as a follower of Jesus and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what church membership is in its most skeletal institutional uh, fashion. It's a, it's a church's affirmation through the ordinances of a person's citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And then so church discipline is the removal of that affirmation. What it is, is me saying, Hey, look, I, I, I don't pretend to be God and know with certain that you're uh, not a Christian, but because you left your wife and children for another woman, you can no longer ask me to publicly testify on your behalf, quote, unquote, Jesus follower, quote, unquote, citizen of the kingdom. I, I just, I cannot do that any longer with integrity. So people sometimes talk about kind of the, the strong, how, how, uh, forceful church discipline is right it's like well, well hold on are you trying to force me to say something i don't think is true right by by preventing discipline it, 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 ironically it goes the other way mm -hmm. because what church authority is let me just back up slightly for a second here daniel what church authority at, at the heart is between fellow priests is an agreement this is the gospel this is a gospel member. If two of you agree on anything, they ask the father in heaven, it'll be done Four, where two or three are gathered in my name. So those two or three are coming together, gathered in the name of agreeing. This is the gospel. And we are fellow gospel members. That, that's what church authority is at the heart, an agreement between believers. So now you and I, Daniel say are no longer in agreement that David is a believer because he's left his wife for another woman. Dave can be like, Oh, that's so unfair. You know, how do you know? Well, well, we don't know. You, you can't force us, David, to mm -hmm. say something we don't think is true. We, we just don't agree anymore that we're willing to call you a Christian. So we're going to remove that affirmation we once gave you and say you, you can't, you're no longer, A, you're no longer a member of our church, and B, we would say you can't receive the Lord's Supper here. Yeah, good. Dave, do you have any other questions for Jonathan? Yeah, so maybe for our people particularly, we are doing this thing called 2020 Vision. And so what we're going to be voting on is campus-specific live preaching going forward instead of uh, video preaching most of the time to all three campuses and then campus-specific strategy meetings, business meetings, congregational meetings. In light of everything you said about priesthood of all believers, congregationalism, uh, is that a good idea? Are you, would you say, yeah, I, I like this. I like that direction. Or would you say, here's what I don't like about it. So moving to campus specific preaching and campus specific decision-making. That's right. Is that, is that it? Yes. 
I, I, I think, yes, I would affirm that that is a movement towards the biblical standard, the biblical model, where are two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Does that mean Jesus is floating like a mystical cloud in the room? No. Does that mean they're all Holy Spirit indwelt? Well, they are Holy Spirit indwelt, but that's not what that text is about. What that text is about, Matthew 18, 20, is that when two or three gather in his name to ask the Father of, for something, verse 19, and to exercise the keys of the kingdom, verse 18, they represent Jesus. They speak for Jesus. It, it, it's just, it just couldn't be more concrete and physical. Where two or three are gathered, there I am among. That means when your South Campus is gathering, and proclaiming the gospel and exercising the keys to the ordinances or bringing somebody in or out of membership, they, Jesus is there. He is among them, right? Mm -hmm. So in that regard, yes, I, I would say uh, moving preaching and decision-making to the congregated assembly is, is, is well in line with what Jesus is recommending. And then, just sorry, one more text, 1 Corinthians 5, 4, what, what, is, what does Paul say? Paul seemed to be grabbing back from Matthew 18, 20, and he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present in the power of the Lord Jesus, what does that remind you of? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present in the power of the Lord Jesus. He, he doesn't say when the elders are gathered all together on Thursday night. behind. No, he says, you Corinthians, when you are assembled in the name and the power of Jesus is present. So somehow Jesus' power is present in that assembly. Again, they speak for him. So yes, I think you're right in line with Jesus. I think you're right in line with Paul by pushing in this. Amen. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Great, thanks, Alex. <laughs>